0: Hey, everybody. How you doing? It's uh, Dan Schwester from The Overrun.
1: I'm Anna Ryan. I'm Jess Mastrocola.
2: I'm Kevin Mazza.
0: And welcoming to the to the studio for the first time ever is uh, new contributor Mike DiFilippo. Mike's a former paramedic on hiatus as he's pursuing a career uh, in medicine. He's a third-year medical student and looking to go emergency medicine. Welcome, Mike.
3: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Excellent. Yes. <laughs> the excitement is okay. Palpable. It was a very Wayne's World moment. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So uh, today, today's topic we're going to talk about is paramedic intubation. Uh, this old trope. Uh, we have. Uh, this is a hugely controversial topic. Uh, people use this all the time. Um, you see it in almost every article and every magazine on a monthly basis. There are people who have made their entire careers out of saying paramedics should not intubate. Uh, so what, what, is, what are we thinking about this? What are, where are we going with this? I mean, should this be something in our toolbox? Should we throw it away? I mean...
2: Yes, this is absolutely be in our toolbox. This is probably the single procedure that gives us the most immediate impact on whether or not we, quote, unquote, save a patient's life. Because as the old rhyme goes, circle, circle, spit, spit. If you don't have an airway, you don't have shit. Yes, thank you, Matt You're welcome. So <laughs> this is, I think this is the yes, most. Yes,
0: folks, we have an explicit tag, and we use it <laughs> this, every week.
2: This is the, I think for us, this is Paramount, the most important skill we can we can have, because again, this is our most. Immediate effective intervention. And this is the one thing where it's like, oh, a five-minute drive to the hospital? Eh, some,
0: no. Is it, though? I mean, is it the most important thing we do? I mean, we hold this, you know, a lot of paramedics, we hold this as this is the holy grail. This is, this is something that we absolutely have to do. You can't take this away from us. And a lot of evidence shows that a lot of paramedics are not good at it.
4: So then is it a question well. of should we have it or should we just do better at it?
1: Do better.
0: Do better. Oh, do better. Hashtag <laughs> do better. Oh,
1: he said the thing. We said a <laughs>
0: thing. Oh. Yay. Hashtag.
3: I do think it's the most important intervention a paramedic does. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's the most important thing a paramedic does, but I definitely think it should be in the toolbox. I think when it comes down to determining whether or not paramedics should intubate or not, the question is usually is it the procedure of intubation or is it the performance of the paramedics? And I think the issue arises, it's the performance of the paramedics. There are paramedics that have better intubation rates than physicians, and there are a lot of paramedics that just don't know how to intubate properly because it's not done frequently. So I think it's not so much the procedure, I think it's just the lack of continual skill practice that gets done.
0: Well, that's a good point. I mean, we, we can all anecdotally sit there and say, you know, we've seen an ED intubation that just went completely into the weeds and uh <laughs> Jess is smirking you
1: mean most ED intubations.
0: <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay,
1: so I'm going to go ahead and say coming from the field as an EMT and seeing medics intubate, not all of them are amazing at it, but I've seen much more success in the field than I've seen now working as a nurse in the ER watching an ER physician do it. ER physicians are very good at intubating when they have their glide scope which i think is a great tool if we have it why not use it but if that breaks down or it's not working is that ed physician going to be able to intubate with just a bougie and that's the real problem like medics are used to not having a glide scope medics can do it without those tools but why not bring those tools into the field Right. I, no, mm-hmm. I just
2: I actually agree with you. Actually, to give a little bit more credit to medics, a little biased opinion, but medics do it under suboptimal conditions. They yes. don't have video laryngoscopy. Um, we've all learned how to do direct laryngoscopy, and physicians have all these great tools between glidescopes and CMAX and um, bronchoscopes now, where they don't remember how to do DL when the light goes out and the That's power right. goes off. And so
1: actually, the other day, we had it where our glidescope stopped functioning, and they The ED physician, it was markedly different watching the ED physician intubate without the GlideScope as opposed to with.
3: I think the other thing to go into the paramedics corner a little bit as to why, in my opinion, too, that paramedics just do it better is that a big thing that I don't hear discussed often is the teamwork aspect of intubation. Mm -hmm. In the ED, you don't choose the nurses you're working with. You don't choose the techs, the respiratory therapists, all that other type of stuff. Your paramedic partner is going to be your paramedic partner full time. You and him or you and her may intubate all patients together. So you just have that flow down. You know, okay, Mike does it this way. Kevin does it this way. I'm going to pick up the slack here. Make sure all of our I's are dotted, T's are crossed because we've done this together so many times. And whether or not you realize it, that's practice and practice breeds perfection. Mm -hmm. And in the ED, you may not have that team practice model set up where it's just as smooth as a paramedic unit may do it. I'm, yeah. yeah. I'm going to take that, that. that
4: one step further. Is that there are some projects where you don't have a steady partner. So it's actually ingrained in our training where you and I are taught to communicate, even if we've never seen each other before, in a certain way in order to get the intubation done. Yeah. Whereas in the ER, I can have a physician who knows how to intubate and a nurse who knows the process, but they've never communicated before and cool. they never learned how to. I think,
2: it, I think a big difference right there for you, Anna, is that you have two paramedics. There aren't usually mm-hmm. two doctors in the room running a code or Correct. performing an intubation together. These are two people trained to the exact same level right. who should both know what one's, yeah. when one's not doing, the other should be like, hey. But there's
0: a lot of places that don't have that luxury. Remember, there's places that listen to this show. That you have an EMT and a paramedic or you're a a single paramedic responding in in a fly car. There's a lot of different systems out there. And while that's a great, I agree with you on the point of having somebody that you work with and you practice with all the time. I think that's more of a symptom of a high functioning organization I don't even rather than...
2: I don't even think it's so much of having a regular partner. I think it's just having two people of equal provider level skill training. I'm going to agree with
4: Kevin there because it's definitely... We've definitely learned how to communicate yeah. Okay, a so level. I level. So,
0: so if all this stuff is the truth, okay, if we hmm. agree at all this stuff around the table, then why do these studies show such abysmal rates? Why do these sh- studies show terrible outcomes? Let's, let's talk about that.
1: Well, I think one of the issues is... These studies are looking at how many? How many is it, Mike? Different?
3: The this one particular one we're talking about. The one about. study that we're going to talk about probably for a while was 27 different EMS agencies.
1: Okay, and it's not guaranteed that every single one of these EMS agencies sees intubation often. And we don't know their training regimen as far as intubation. You know, there might be a project that you do a quarterly training on a mannequin with intubation. There might be a project where... You go to the hospital at least once a year and you go to the OR and you do X amount of intubations in the OR every year to keep up with your training. These projects, maybe they don't have anything set in stone as far as keeping up with your practice so that when you do finally get one in the field, you haven't done one in a couple months, like how rusty are you going to be? Like I, I remember coming out of EMT school, learning the hair traction splint. And then not using it in the field until three years later. And I didn't remember how to use it. So why would it be any different with any other skill? Okay, skills skills are
0: it. frangible. I'd agree mm-hmm. with that. And there is skill degradation. But that still doesn't, you know. So, go on, so going on that, what, you know, we've always heard that the average number of intubations per paramedics in the United States is very low. Uh, I, I've heard numbers say two. I've heard some numbers say three. And that's I know per if you, year? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I know that, you know, there are places where you probably do less. Does that have an effect?
2: Absolutely. I probably. think there was a um, study, and then maybe Mike can pull it up, that actually looks at basically the number of intubations needed per year in order to be considered proficient or competent. Maybe he knows off the top of his head. Here he comes.
3: Uh, the only study I can think of off the top of my head was a study done for pediatrics, but I think it probably could be translated well into the adult realm, is that to be considered proficient in intubating pediatrics, this was done on anesthesiologists and critical care physicians, you needed to have intubated 50 pediatric patients to have a 90% first-pass success rate. So if you're intubating less than 50 pediatric patients for that 90% first-pass success rate, then your first-pass success rate is less than
1: 50%. Really?
0: Well, that's pretty significant. So
3: mm-hmm. wow. you know, it seems to be like 50 is the magic number to at least attain proficiency in intubation. Not per year, but at least to get
0: fifty uh, total to get you to the point where you can actually function. Right, and then currently. you have like
3: a maintenance every year that you need to hit. Okay.
0: And that's why, like you, you see some places like I know in California, LA County and LA City, they don't intubate pediatrics anymore. They've literally just said you you don't do it, and they just manage them with bag mask ventilation, which has its own. You know, pluses and minuses. Shout out, Merlin. It's another
3: podcast. <laughs> yeah.
4: Bag of
0: death. <laughs> bag of death. Mm-hmm. We, we're going to say it every week at some point, so death. we're going to mention bag of death. But then um, is the
4: answer to take away the skill, or is it to train your staff on a consistent basis?
0: Well, that's a good idea. You know, that's, that's something that we need to look at. I think, I think trainings, you know, here's, here's one of my things, you know, um, There's a new study that came out um, by somebody that if you're, if we're, you know, if you've been around EMS for a while, uh, you know the name, um, Dr. Henry Wong. Um, He is a airway, uh, he does a lot of airway research, Uh, not of it, not all of it good for paramedics. Um, And there was one that just came out uh, that talked about the efficacy of endotracheal intubation over putting in a laryngeal tube, which uh, because, you know, we can't use trademarks, but a laryngeal tube is basically superglottic airway, your King LTSDs, um, your eye gels, things like that. And uh, it was a pretty good study. Um, you, know, you might have heard, if uh, you heard the interview we had with Doctor Mark Merlin a couple weeks ago, uh, he quoted this study. He was pretty, um, he was pretty happy with it. He thought it was a very good study. Um, but he was, we were not sure, didn't seem to be really sure what it meant. Um, and in the end, he's he's a very pro paramedic intubation physician. Uh, Mike, what, what, do you, what do you have to contribute on that?
3: So I do agree that that study is uh, statistically very sound as far as the hierarchy of statistical studies go. Number one is going to be your meta-analyses where you look at multiple well-done studies over time. And then right below that is what's called the randomized control trial. And the laryngeal tube versus endotracheal tube was a randomized control trial, which is great that the providers didn't know if they were going to be doing an ETI or laryngeal tube up until the point that they needed to place an airway. So there was no sense for bias in that sense that they wouldn't, you know, change what they were doing if they knew they were going to be doing a laryngeal tube versus an ETI. So I do think this study was good. Uh, It was a huge study. It involves 27 different EMS agencies, uh, thousands of patients. So it does have good statistical backing. And I just think it says some uncomforting things that we don't like to hear that ETI isn't always the answer. Uh, you know, sometimes it's okay to go to a different, um, airway first, but I do still think endotracheal tube is the gold standard. Like if at first you may have to put a laryngeal tube in, you know, no, no, nothing says you can't, you know, put an ETI in after you get ROSC, pop a bougie in, switch it out and put an ETI in after you get ROSC.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. So So here's my thing with, with Airways 3 that this study that we're looking at and, and You know, when you talk about, you know, help us out, Mike, I mean, because you're going to med school and you're into this stuff. So when when somebody's listening to the podcast and they hear you say it's statistically significant and it's a good study, what do you what three what few things do you look for when you read a study?
3: So the first thing you look for when you're reading a study is it's out of a journal that's trustworthy. Um, There's tons of journals you can just submit articles to if you have the money to submit an article and they'll publish it. So this was done in the Journal of Resuscitation, I believe. Oh, no, this was the Journal of American Medical Association, or JAMA, which is a well-known journal, one.
0: Yeah, it's pretty big.
3: Pretty, you know, some people may have heard of it. Uh, The second thing (laughs) you look at is whether or not the patient population that was studied and the organization in which it was done in is relative to me and my patients. So what does that mean is, okay, I hear this study about intubation, for example, but it's out of Osaka, Japan. Is their EMS system the same as the system I work in? Are the patient population over there the same as the patients I see? You know, the things that cause cardiac arrest in Japan may be very different than the things that cause cardiac arrest here in the United States. So this study was done here in the United States. It was done in EMS systems that are very similar to the ones we have here. So in that aspect, it was statistically sound. And then the last thing you look for is significance. Did the materials they were measuring reach significance? And what that means is, would these scenarios happen again just by chance, or would they happen again just based off of the intervention that was done? And what it showed here is that the increase in cardiac arrest survival with laryngeal tube was not just by chance, it was because of something that, th- that they did, and in this aspect they argue it was a laryngeal tube that increased their cardiac arrest neurological survival outcomes, as opposed to ETI. So those are like the, the big okay. things you look for when you're looking at a statistically sound study. Which this all fits.
0: So just reading the abstract and making a pronouncement in the crew room or at a conference or sitting around a table, that's not really understanding what they're talking about. Because I hear that a lot. You know, I hear somebody, oh, this this Wang study came out and, uh, you know, we shouldn't be intubating. You know, medics shouldn't intubate.
3: There are no absolutes. I like that. (laughs) Right. I like that. Um,
1: I mean, I think medicine would be pretty easy if there were absolutes. Right. I mean, there are some (laughs)
3: patients you can look at that you just know this person needs an endotracheal tube. Uh, Cardiac arrest, it can be very easy just to say carte blanche, everyone gets a supraglottic airway or a laryngeal tube and no one gets an ETI anymore. But that's not simply true either. You have someone that has a ridiculously out of control airway where they're vomiting all the time. There's a lot of blood or something. And you don't want that patient aspirating that. I feel like that would be more of an argument to put an ETI in as opposed to a supraglottic airway. Mm-hmm. Grandma that dropped dead because she went into V-fib. You know, I think a supraglottic airway would be better than that. I mean, I you know, it's not black and white. Or so I don't think one one study should never drive mm-hmm. your uh, clinical care. You should look at aggregate data and also about, I mean, anecdotal data is an evidence, but you have your clinical gestalt for a reason and use the research studies you get to influence your clinical gestalt.
0: gestalt
2: I just I, can I just say I'm happy Mike's here just to expand all of our vocabularies yeah <laughs> this is clearly what they teach you in med school because you probably use at least three or four words I'm like we ah mi- we I can might, add that to my lexicon we might lexicon. have to
0: add a glossary on the show notes <laughs> spell it though spell gestalt G stalt. G E stalt. G. <laughs> e. So here so that's a good point that Mike makes is and you see this all the time. Like people I know people who will look at a study and they'll they'll, you know, they they pick one and they'll they'll say, Okay, this shows absolutely we shouldn't be doing this. Look and that's at what happened true. after Paramedic Two.
2: Like everyone's like, Oh, oh we gotta pull Epi off the truck. or so at least that became the clickbait headlines to draw oh, sure. people in. And you the- saw
0: this. There was clickbait about this too. Absolutely. Like, oh, a laryngeal paramedics can save more lives with this. So you if- know
2: what it did? It's, it definitely started a conversation amongst, you know, where I work and amongst my colleagues like, hey, this study came out. Um, they're going to take ET tubes away from us. It was like, whoa. Oh, slow, yeah, your, pump the slow your roll.
1: not if dr merlin has anything to say no no
2: no
0: no, no. well i mean and that's everybody and and i'll be honest you know when i was younger i mean you know dr wang you know he was the type of guy i demonized his stuff and i really looked i was like oh this guy every time he's putting out a study its medics are terrible and they shouldn't intubate and then you know you know i talked to some other docs who are into the literature and and good researchers and they're like no that's not what he's saying What he's actually pointing out is looking at the incidences of problems and trying to make people think about how better to solve this problem, you know? And, you know, what, that's what I started looking at with this, with this study was like, what's this guy saying? And, you know, when you look at the intubation studies, there's, there's common threads in there. Number one, most of the studies either talk about traumatic patients with head injuries or they talk about cardiac arrest, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's really low-hanging fruit, in my opinion, and, you know, don't at me, but, you know, when you say, oh, people with uh, severe head injuries that are intubated do worse than people with severe head head injuries are not intubated, and I go, duh. Like, yes, obviously the person that needs to get intubated in the field is probably not going to do as well as a person who can maintain their own airway um i i think that's kind of a misnomer and then you know then you know people will they adjust for an in injury score and i'm like yeah but does a score adequately reme- really measure it or
2: no because you know what those scores are changing almost a yearly basis about what like a modified trauma score like, um there's a head injury score that's always different i mean we're, we're even how we're looking at stroke scores in general how we assess them is changing oh, yeah. on a you know, we've already talked about that before so a trauma score versus a, like a severity of head injury score, I think it, it ends up being something really subjective based on the I judgment of the parameters. I think it's just an paramedic. easy
0: judgment to make or a snap decision if you just want to...
2: To them, it's an easy line because they have these parameters for what's serious and what's not as serious. And then they can just kind of group them and mismatch them like, okay, who did better with this thing and then that thing? They already have a population set based off a score they made. Um, but I don't know, but to be frank, I don't know anything more about the score other than this is just the score they study for how severe the head injury was. Maybe Mike has a little bit better knowledge of that
3: than I do. Well, not about the specific scores you were talking about, but I was just going to say, just to use that as an example, um, why scores should give you clinical clues to things, but they shouldn't drive your clinical care. For example, I know we're talking about intubation, but the NIH stroke scale. If you have someone with a posterior cerebellar stroke, um, coming in, their NIH stroke scale most often than not is going to be zero mm-hmm. showing that they don't have a stroke Yep, because yep. these patients don't present with hemiparesis, they don't really present with dysarthria, they don't present with facial droop. These patients come in because they can't walk straight. They keep falling over to one side. Mm-hmm. The NIH stroke scale, and that's why you should always know the limitations of scales you're going to be using, the NIH stroke scale was made to catch large vessel occlusions, particularly large vessel occlusions that affect the left hemisphere of the body so or the brain so if you have a stroke that doesn't fit that scale that it was made to measure then you're completely missing things right so scales are great when you're trying to look at data and and find you know is what we're doing correct do we catch this specific thing that we're measuring with this specific scale but if you have something that falls out of that scale then it falls short so again i'm going to say it again ready clinical gestalt It comes in. If something deep in your gut, deep in the jimmies, just feels feels wrong, right? The the cockles, the subcockle area. Or you feel something needs to be done based off your clinical expertise, do it. I mean, you're going to, you see at the end of every ACLS algorithm, every PALS algorithm, every, even clinical studies, they'll say, you know, one caveat is provider discretion or physician discretion. And that's because there are things that we just can't measure with statistical analyses or things like that, that just come back to what have I seen, what do I know has worked in a patient that was similar to this, that may not fit into this exact, you know, cookie cutter scenario, and what can I do, and a lot of that is medicine, that's why it's called an art, it is a science, there's a lot of science in it, trust me, there's a lot of science in it, (laughs) I'm losing my hair over it, but, you know, the art of it too, let's
0: be honest, you were losing it before,
3: that is true,
1: (laughs) it's accelerated the process,
3: it's going from the top of my head to my back,
4: it's a little more gray, that's really what it comes down to,
3: but yeah no that's why that's where the art comes in you know i i I don't think you should go around proselytizing um one article saying this should change your clinical care but just take everything in kind of aggregate look at everything in total and does it always apply to you no does it apply in some situations yes so score shouldn't drive your clinical care
2: mike deflippo everybody mike drop wow Done. That's what you call it here on anytime time Mike drops like nuggets, like that. Just it's a mic drop. Mike, oh, no. right? Ooh.
3: Wow.
4: Why did none of us ever pick that up?
2: I'm proud of you. Uh, him and I were only partners for like four oh years. No, so. oh, I have oh. experience oh. with him.
3: Whatever. Yeah, Ooh. Are you, are you <laughs> experienced?
0: <laughs> but, um, you know, there's some good points of where, you know, You're we, we're going to do, I think we're going to do an episode on, I think we're going to do an episode on like how to read a paper like how to actually read oh do
1: that i would like that and
0: and maybe we're going to work on like a checklist for paramedics and emts people like read a paper and be able to speak to it with some kind of like hey i'm reading more than the abstracts because people that's an easy trap to fall into
2: right i think um especially based off merlin's interview like read every day he reads every single day and if you know how to you gotta because looking at statistics is like learning a different language. Uh, um, I've taken statistics in college. It's um, awful. It, I hate it. It's a completely it's, the worst. it's not math, it's not no, French. I love it. It's something else and Good. you have to it's it's a language to be learned, so I think that would be a great idea because if if we can encourage Merlin cuz uh, listen, I already read a lot and after listening to Merlin I was just encouraged to read more. Oh, absolutely. So but if we can instill that in others, but now they know what to read, how to look at sure. other than just abstracts or just hop. Or at it just to
0: call somebody out when they're pontificating like about oh it's this and like you know I had to come with a decent word because <laughs> Mike's yeah. You know, Are we going to put
2: like a
4: glossary but, in the show notes? Yeah, <laughs> we're
0: going to have to. Um, but you know when people talk, you know, it's kind of talk out their ass about stuff. Yeah, it's they like, talk well, shit. wait a minute. You oh, know, of course they do. Like, it's
1: easy to talk out. What your
0: is ass. this? And and you know. Um, there are studies out there that strongly support that paramedics should intubate. Um, when I interviewed Dr. Merlin on the, the episode a couple weeks ago, go back to episode 16, um, you know, he pointed out that there was the there was a study by uh, Adhit. And, um, basically the, the investigators of the study had already biased themselves that they thought the paramedics shouldn't intubate. Mm -hmm. So they set the study up knowing that bias was there. And guess what the results were? The results were that patients who were intubated by paramedics did better. There are studies that, you know, with head trauma and certain things that paramedics do better. My other pet peeve is you know, I'm not knocking any agency, but we all know in our, in our profession, there are some high functioning agencies out there. There are some really strong people doing some really good paramedicine. Um, I don't ever see a study published by London Hems. I don't ever see a study by Sydney EMS. I don't see any study coming out that looks at Wake County's RSI or Seattle's RSI success rates. And you know, that to me is kind of disingenuous in it on, on the You know, on the surface, you know, what are the high-performing agencies do? Maybe that's what we should be looking at. Um, What do they do? What matters? And why are they so good at what they do?
3: Well, I also think that, like I said earlier, is it the person performing the procedure or is it the procedure itself? Just because you find a few studies that say out-of-hospital ETI is associated with increased mortality, that may not be because of the procedure itself. It may just be how it's carried out. For instance, a June 2018 JAMA article said that um, the effects of using a Bougie to assist with endotracheal intubation was associated with increased success rate and increased survivability and less mortality. And that's something that I feel like some providers use all the time, like I did towards the end of my paramedic career. Mm. I use Bougie on 100% of my intubations. I'm doing it all the time, too. Yeah. And I'm not saying, you know, oh, yeah, I knew this JAMA article was coming out and where's my name on the article. No, it's just that I found myself again, this is where anecdotal comes in and clinical gestalt like I found in that found out that when I was using a bougie on my patients, it was just better for me and better for my patients. I saw my intubation success rate go higher. I saw my time from putting the laryngoscope in to getting the tube was much faster. My patients didn't desat as fast. So these are all things I didn't have study data to back up, but I just found out was working for me. And now there is study data to show it. Right. So sometimes changing the approach could be the answer to these studies, not necessarily removing the procedure.
4: And it's changing the procedure too. We right. had a high-flow nasal cannula now to prevent desaturation and then you have, you know, we took away um, the burp technique. Uh, oh, so, okay. Okay. Also, yeah.
2: so also remember what Merlin said back in episode 16, that it doesn't matter what attempt you get that tube on, as long as you don't have hypotension, bradycardia, and hypoxia, right. it's considered successful too, right? Mm-hmm. That's the big things you're trying to avoid. So if it takes yeah, you three it- attempts... attempts at
0: Attempt's not critically important. We we worry about first-pass success, but
2: but it's it's nice to
0: have. Don't get me wrong.
2: With each extra attempt, though, you increase the likelihood of one of these things happening. So the bougie to increase first-pass success rate is to actually cut down on causing one of those big three that will end up causing a poor long-term outcome for your patient.
3: Well, if you look at the PROTECT-3 trial, for instance, so you just said, Merlin, as an example, said as long as your patient doesn't desat, become hypotensive— then you shouldn't care necessarily what intubation attempt you get the tube at. The PROTECT-3 trial was a uh, intubation uh, trial done out of, I'm pulling it up, sorry, I'm a little late. Well, either way, it was done in 2017, but it looked, pre-hospital emergency care journal. It looked at uh, paramedic intubation success rate, and it found that there was an association with improved outcomes when paramedics intubated, which goes contrary to the other articles we discussed. And this was also a randomized controlled trial. It was double-blinded, so it has all the makings of a great statistically sound paper, which it is. But what was the difference with this paper versus the other ones? This one excluded patients that were moribund or had mortality issues, meaning they excluded patients that were hypotensive, that were hypoxic, so sick patients that die. So again, going back to what Merlin was saying and the connection of all of this is, maybe the answer is just making sure when we can that these patients are as clinically stable before we intubate, prior to doing the intubation attempt. Save yourself and save your patient from the hassle of becoming hypotensive during the event. Using appropriate pharmacological uh, intervention prior to the intubation attempt, like ketamine, wonderful drug. Make sure you never desat, become hypotensive. So again, maybe all these studies together, because we have two studies that say paramedics shouldn't intubate. We have one that says paramedics should intubate. Looking at all these together is the conclusion that we should just prepare ourselves better, and I think the answer is yes. And I also think the answer is paramedics should still intubate. I'm not. Mic gonna,
0: drop. I'm not going to argue that. I, I think that's a that's a good one. So, if we're if we're if we're onto something here, where we're talking about we're, these variables that we can change, that are going to defend and keep this skill and make it a more a safer skill, a better skill, so that we can take care of patients better. Let's look at some of the things. Let's first of all training and experience. Let's let's talk about that because I don't think we teach paramedics intubation right in the in in medic school to start at all i think you get fred the head out and everybody just does you know they they play the game of we stick you know you stick the blade in you lift up you look and we've got this mantra that we teach of i sweep the tongue to the left right. we, look the the tongue doesn't sweep to the left and fred the head it doesn't go that way nobody you know there's a there's a Nobody's really doing it that way. I, I, you know, and then, you know, you lift up and you, you kind of put the, you know, and it's all anecdotal of how to teach this. And, you know, if you listen to a guy like Rich Levitan, if you, you go to Darren Brody, you go to a difficult airway class, they teach a totally different methodology. Um, you do a midline approach. You look for the epiglottis before you look for the chords. Sometimes you're not going to see the chords and that's okay because if you know your anatomy cold you're going to be okay. And I don't think we teach that at all in paramedic school. And I don't think we reinforce it at all.
4: I agree. You I know, mean, I... we don't have, there's been, you know, at least in our shop, there's a decent amount of, you know, <coughs> we have a pretty good pass rate, I want to say. We have a very our, high pass rate where we right. are. But there's still paramedics uh, in the field who aren't getting that experience anyway. And all of our students are, you know, coming into the field and they're like, sweep a sweep the left and all that other stuff. But we still don't provide remediation. We don't provide uh, experiential training in the, in the field or at our stations. Um, there are projects that require you to do five pass tubes before you start your shift, and that's never been a standard for us. And it, it's something that would Im- improve outcomes exponentially.
2: Right. So in my little division of our same shop, um, we have quarterly competencies where we have to intubate, either record our live intubations down to like run numbers, you know, age. You know, and how we did it. V L D L, bougie assisted or no. And then if you don't get those, you have to go intubate the adult the sim man, the pediatric, and the neonate. That mm-hmm. all needs to be recorded. And That happens every every quarter. It has to be done, or else. Hey, guess what? You can't work. Right. So it's, and, and it's our, absolute.
4: And we happen to work in separate divisions. So if uh, so, I work full time on the ground, and I guarantee you, my last uh, competency is done yearly, and all I have to do is show that I can intubate the sim man once. Mm-hmm. That's it. And if there's ever a time where I have a difficult airway, or if I have something that um, like didn't work out first pass or whatever it is, there's never someone who looks at that chart or asks my experience or sees if I if I need any help with it. I might be really shitty at uh, an intubation. I'm not, but even so, <laughs> I'm not. I'm no not. paramedic so you know.
0: ever sucks at intubation. No, we're, every we're paramedic, all, has every paramedic 100% 100% is pass rate. a god at I have
4: like 85% <laughs> pass rate. I think that's respectable. Um, I've but got two still mess this year. I don't even know what I have. Uh, but that's, that's, my other, that's
2: my other point, is that you... That's a story for another time. This is a mess. What? You know your miss what did rate. What you say? I have two misses this year. Really? Oh, Ooh. yeah. Wow. <laughs> but you know your
4: rate, and you know where it is that same, you're supposed to improve. Same patient. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. I mean, for him, I guess. <laughs> and, Whatever. And that's but, okay.
0: You're going to have those. Everybody's yeah. going to have that, that patient that just, it didn't work. And, you know, I... You know, you hate it, but those are the ones you learn from.
2: Right. But that's in, in this particular scenario. Like I had two misses. My partner's like, I'm, listen, watching what you're going through, we're just putting in a superglotic, and that's it. It was a right. like cardiac arrest. He's like, let's not play with it further. And I and totally agree.
0: That's a good, that's a good, solid strategy. And let's talk, let's talk about tools. So we've talked about teaching experience. Let's talk about the tools that a lot of EMS services are not giving to their paramedics. Um, first one for me that drives me absolutely insane is you're gonna give paramedics intubation skills and you are not going to give them medications to actually do the job
1: mm, Thank you you know
0: when the when the evidence clearly shows that by giving a paralytic, you improve the view by one full grade on the cormac lehane scale, okay? How are you allowing sedation only uh, intubation because you don't trust the medics enough to do a a paralytic intubation? Now, I'm not saying everybody should get paralytics all the time, but we know that it works and we know that it does improve rates. And, you know, places where all we have is a Tominator, we're not allowed to do it that way. And then you wonder why their intubation rates are not good. You know, when you don't give them the tools like video lary- laryngoscopy. I mean, that is something that you could be there. There's agencies that don't use bougies.
1: What? What? Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, Criminal. It's a, it's a Criminal. plastic stick. Why not use it?
4: But I want to go back to that. Why not use it? Why not use the, the medications? These are people who don't trust their paramedics. So if you don't trust these people, why aren't you training them to a point where you can trust them?
0: I, I would go a step further. Look, if you don't trust your paramedics and you don't think that they're good enough to do this. First of all, it's on you. Secondly, don't give them the skill. Yeah. Yeah. How about just say, you know what? You're just going to put superlotic airways in and be done with it.
3: And you should step down as their medical director. And I'm not saying that facetiously. If you don't trust your paramedics that are supposed to be under your direction (sighs) Mm -hmm. to be educated and proficient in skills that they are supposed to be doing, step down and let somebody else get in there who can teach them. And I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem that a lot of EMS systems see. And then. I think that just feeds into why there are low pass success rates and poor intubation rates in some areas. There's just not the, it, it's, it's top down in some aspects. If there's not the motivation and the education coming from above, then the medics that are on the ground are going to get complacent and they're not right. going to want to do that.
0: And, and it's, you know, it's so funny because, you know, there's this, this, this hesitation of RSI. And I, I was in a, I was a pre RSI medic and you guys it. Sure. You weren't. guys, you taught you guys us. all came into the RSI world. I started as a medic back in the day um, where we didn't have RSI. The only people, the only practitioners who were allowed to have it were the flight crews. And it was a pain. I mean, we, you know, and people talk nostalgically. I mean, yes, there were CHF patients that were so used to being intubated that they would. You know, put their head back and open their mouth, and you'd be able to intubate them with nothing. And I I still remember those days. But I remember that's something you you want
4: to be practiced in.
3: Cracking a cold one open with the boys. (laughs)
0: It's it's true, but it was terrifying. And I remember the days of giving people, you know, Valium or morphine to try to just snow them out enough to to get this done. And it never worked right. And it was causing the
1: need for intubation, right? Or what?
0: Or nasal intubation, which some people are still like, "Oh, nasal's great." Look, I I haven't done a nasal intubation in fifteen years. They didn't
1: even bother teaching it to us. I don't miss it. I didn't even know that existed. So. Oh yeah. Oh. And my God.
0: I I I don't and trust me I don't no. miss it. No. Um, but. You know. There are You're still
2: an ER nurse in a very busy ER I also, am. and I can't believe that, one, you've never seen one of the doctors who are over the age of 40 performing.
1: None it. of them are over the age of 40, I don't think. Or if they are, they're very like up-to-date. Oh, you don't mean Dr. K is not over? I'm not going to use uh, his full no name.
2: Names. No. no names. No name. That's <clears throat> just an initial.
3: No names.
1: MDK is... No, he is not. MDK. MDK.
3: <laughs> Getting back to the the point of this, I, think, I don't think it's a thing you can half ass. You either full ass it or you don't ass. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I mean by that is give it your whole ass. Yeah, give it one giant whole ass every time you're going into intubate. <laughs> Meaning, if you're gonna give your paramedics the ability to intubate, give them every tool that they need to intubate. Mm-hmm. Because there may be a patient you're going into intubate that you realize needs a crike mm-hmm. all of a sudden. Um and the farmer pharma- yeah, That's
0: another thing. Like how you're gonna trust somebody to sedate and paralyze somebody But you're afraid to give them the ability to make a small hole in the front of their neck to save their patient's life. You're afraid. Like, stop. That's
4: not a progressive mindset. If you're going to be in charge of people who are basically operating
2: as you in the field, you have to be ahead of the medicine. I mean, listen, as paramedics, we put small holes in people all the time between Mm -hmm. chest decompression, IVs. IVs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what's one in the neck? Yeah, yeah, already already I don't know if we want to look at it that lightly, but I mean, sure. I, I do because. So, yeah, but that's good. <laughs> sort of, so, can't, if you're going to do that procedure, you can't get too excited about it. You have to no. look at it lightly. So, give
0: them the tools. Okay, right. give them the training. Make them practice. There should be an intubation head in every station. You should have that ability to practice it all the time. You know, just like shooting free throws or or shooting baskets in your yard. It makes you a better basketball player. Going to the golf course and hitting golf balls makes you a better golfer. We know this.
4: Throw curveballs into your
0: your competencies. Right. Deliberative task practice does improve proficiency. We know this, right? Mm -hmm. So the other part of this is the, the, the clinical side is you have to give oversight you know, if your medics are out doing this, you have to have a robust QA program. And, mm-hmm. you know, speaking as a clinical guy, my place, I, I review hundred percent of the intubations. Everybody that gets a tube gets looked at and generally they will get a comment back from me. And this used to incense people like, why are you questioning me? Why are you questioning what I'm doing? And it's like, no, we're just, just trying to train for the next one every opportunity we have is an opportunity to learn for the next one I didn't every intubation didn't go well in my life every every intubation didn't go the way I expected I learned from it and I learned from those I learned from those issues and I and I applied those solutions to the next patient and that's how you get good you know it's not you know when we're students, we look at we look at our preceptor, we look at somebody that we look up to as really that person, and you're like, wow, how did they do that so fast? It's not because they're good. It's because they've done it so many times. Mm-hmm. They're so comfortable with their equipment that it just looks like it's so easy.
4: Muscle memory is a thing.
3: Right, mm-hmm. and I this may be a controversial thing. I know we talked about it before we started recording, but I think similar to how police officers have to qualify with their handgun every so often, I don't know, three times a year or whatever it is, paramedics should have to qualify with intubation. It is a skill we do, but it's also a skill that can have grave consequences if it's done incorrectly. And I think if you're just unable to perform the skill or perform the scenario, there's so much that goes into intubation, the right pharmacology, knowing the dose, knowing the contraindications, knowing who is appropriate for an endotracheal tube versus a supraglottic versus BVM only. No one. One, uh,
1: no, bag-a-du- <laughs> bag-a-du- but i think geez. you
3: should be able to Bag-a-du-th. lose Bag-a-du-th. that skill because one it would make sure everyone's on top of it and two it may incentivize some people to stay on top of it that just could become complacent with it
4: well i mean if you tie someone's paycheck into a skill then of course they're going to do it
3: yeah, absolutely if they
2: can't do the skill you take you take it away uh, listen if you have a paramedic if you have two paramedics on a truck skill? you take no you take no you take this you start with the skill <laughs> okay. so you have so say somebody has like one of these quarterly competencies where they have to come in and prove that they can perform the skill correct mm. and you have two paramedics on a truck where we all happen to be if one paramedic can't perform you can take that skill away like hey we're going to check you out again in three months get some practice come to the sim lab hours are posted their partner can still perform it but they cannot and you well, start, you
0: start there. I mean, you're c- you're onto something here, but I want to look at it as not a punitive way. I
2: don't yeah, I, I, I don't it, think it's punitive. I think it. I think it's. It, it does.
4: You're not, you're not. It comes across away as, as
0: punitive. It, it can, does. It, it like, can come across as punitive. And it's but, not. Like, you know, it's how it's, about, not, it's
4: how you phrase it and how you how you structure sure. it. But it's your job. It's well, your yeah, job. it is your job. Well, mm-hmm. But if you can't if you can't perform the skill, then there's a step for remediation and there's a step Yeah, I mean for you don't lose a dime. You don't. Kind
0: of you're, you're not losing money. You're not losing stuff like that. And, you and know, as much as I would
3: like to see it, I think practically it would be very hard to implement because I think there's a shortage of paramedics mm-hmm. in every state in every project, and. I mean, we all know that one crew that may have a full set of chromosomes between the both of them. Hey-oh. right? Oh. And, and you're like, oh. how? How have they how, not been how did, fired?
4: How did you get dressed this morning? And you hear, <laughs> yeah. you hear horror, st- you hear
3: horror stories coming out of. Did you hear what they did? Did you hear what mm-hmm. they did? How did they not get fired? Administration knows about it. You talk to every chief or preceptor or or um, supervisor, and they're like, yeah, I know this crew, but blah, you can't lose So, the crew. so here's
0: the other side right. of this. Should we be limiting this skill to those who can perform it proficiency, proficiently on demand? And does that mean that a new entry level paramedic may not have the chops to be doing RSI flat out of the box?
2: It might that, uh, you know what? Should I we
0: be saying like, "Hey, you're revise. a new grad paramedic," just like we do with new grad nurses or yeah. physicians? Like, "Hey, look, or interns that you're starting off." You're not going to do this. You're going to do super lotics. and then you're well, going to go to the difficult airway course or you're going to go to one of these airway training programs or you're going to go through our own homegrown stuff and you're going to show your proficiency in sim.
2: Yeah. No, I, I totally agree and with you. Then, I don't, I don't, I don't. So to go back to what I said, maybe you shouldn't penalize it for three months, but yeah, there should be a remediation process. Mm-hmm. Maybe like a, Hey, you got to come in for a skills day. Let's see what you're mm-hmm. doing wrong. Let's see how we can improve it. But rather than make it a punitive measure. Um, as for new paramedics. We as paramedics have a distinct advantage, and just can tell you about the difference between a nurse intern and a paramedic mm. intern. We actually get to perform these procedures as students, whether it's in an OR, or out in the field. Yep. But the RSI procedure that you need to have that stuff cold. I think as to coming off what you're saying is, maybe a new medic shouldn't be able to perform it until. So many Either they've been through the a difficult airway course. Until they,
0: they get their feet wet, they get comfortable. They should, right. have, they should have to see at least one To come patient. off Mike's and point we, is but do we're, still sh- we're, sh- we're short paramedics. They may not even
2: get th- I know when I started, they were asking me on my second day of orientation, like, hey, can you pick up a shift tomorrow?
0: Mm-hmm. We're kind of oh, short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
3: yeah. I was, I was six months of paramedic, and they're like, oh, congratulations, you're getting a brand new paramedic as your full-time partner.
0: <laughs> yep. That you and, and that makes me cringe.
3: Yeah, no, I it was scary being and a it's and unfortunately
0: medic. it's a necessary beast, which is exactly why you know do you want two new grad paramedics out there with paralytics and a minimum amount of training and a laryngoscope but, but do we, and do
4: we have the luxury to not no. We don't. I no. I don't. Not in in our
0: project. So then the onus is on your training, on your clinical governance, and your medical direction oversight to actually make sure that people are safe. Mm -hmm.
2: In our system, we do not have that luxury. In a system that is perhaps fire based, where you have five paramedics on the scene, like, hey, new guy, get in there and tube. Like, here's a chance to get some experience. Mm -hmm. If they think that way about their new guys, if he's not too busy cooking dinner back at the station, but. (laughs) Here we don't have. I don't think we have the luxury because we're a two paramedic unit, and then we're already short in this area. Mm. So, uh, what's the practical? Answer? There I is the I, the practical I answer is maybe you just have airway mannequins. That they can get proficient on their own time or on shift. I think honestly, for it's it's every comes, shift that comes come in, to,
4: in, it comes practice. back to the project structure. If you are a new paramedic, then you have three months with someone who is, you know, five years in, six years in, whatever it is. And if one of those advanced procedures come up, you're allowed to participate, but you're not allowed to lead.
1: Right. So kind if I have like an
4: RSI that comes up, I'm not intubating because that's the vital part of that procedure. But that but person has to.
0: But that person has to be in a frame of mind that I'm going to. Eventually, you will be the shot caller. Right. Right. So then you. So you have your to be guided. My first. You know?
4: My first month with my with my you know on on the job preceptor means that I'll push drugs, but I won't intubate. My second. My second uh, month is. Um, he and I get to talk about how to intubate and then, you know, I get to be involved in that procedure. My third month and my sign-off is that I can do it. Done right. and done.
3: So.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: But that's also the, that also affords that there are people within the system that are, A, amenable to teaching and, B, experienced enough.
0: Well, that's a whole other story.
2: Right. Yeah. So maybe, Anna, to go off that, maybe if we had more practice mannequins and at stations or maybe part of your full-time training is one day or half a shift, um, maybe as you're like, maybe you're a third or it was part of your week. You are at the sim lab practicing. Yeah. Going through scenarios, maybe with the preceptor, clinical coordinator, whatever. But you're getting better at running the show by yourself.
4: Sure. Mandatory sim. Absolutely.
2: Uh, yeah. I think. It's a- just and an we absolute. know
0: sim works. I mean, look, there's pilots you, who fly the simulator a heck of a lot more than they fly planes. Um, I know mm-hmm. in the military, there's a lot of you know new grad pilots who fly the simulator a there's, lot before There's medical allowed, research
3: you know. with physicians that high fidelity simulation increases outcomes, in and a high fidelity sim is I, one I of those like it. hot it's mostly things seen now. With If you're research, doing it
0: right, that's a whole other well, episode. Right. Right. Where, where episode. do we get on that one? But uh, so we we've come to some good good ideas here, and I think I think we've touched the surface of what we're looking at with um with intub- with paramedic intubation. I think the jury's out. I think. It, it's very dependent on program. I think it's very dependent on the type of paramedic you're bringing into your system. It, it depends on a lot of different variables, your clinical governance, your medical director, um, the knowledge that you're putting out to the crews, and the feedback that they're getting. Um, we don't want them to not have a healthy respect for intubation or RSI or doing these procedures. But at the same time, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that all paramedics shouldn't intubate because simply because a study says so.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think, Mike, you made a great point. You know, we've talked about that, how you have to look at the study as more than just the abstract and look at the data and what is the person actually trying to tell you. So I think that's a good place to stop. Um you know it's a good first outing for Mike and um, welcome Mike welcome. welcome thank you three
4: Mike drops that
2: whole that yeah, whole episode a lot of new vocabulary yeah and let's also hear follow
0: and let's hear what you have to say uh, you know the go on the website uh, overrunproductions dot com and uh, you know comment on the uh, podcast also iTunes Spotify Stitcher Google Play and uh, Alexa
1: soon Alexa soon Ooh.
0: and. Uh, you know, we'll be back next week with another episode. And uh, for now, I'm Dan.
1: I'm Anna. I'm Jess. I'm Kevin.
3: And I'm Mike. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and have, take care and uh, get home safe, everybody.